the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Today I'd like to introduce you to Ian Woods, Australian Air Force Squadron Leader. Now, Ian gained substantial experience on caribous during his time in the Air Force. Caribous were of the famed Wallaby Airlines operated by the Air Force during the Vietnam War and revered elsewhere as one of the very best short takeoff and landing aircraft in history. Ian learnt not only a lot about caribous during his time, but they were the catalyst for the gaining of a bit of wisdom. Earlier, before we did the interview, Ian told me a story, and let me share his words. This is what he said. I flew over 700 hours in the first 12 months. I also learned quite a lot about what navigators did. A caribou squadron included maintenance and administrative personnel, good insight into what it takes to keep pilots in the air, and and an understanding that helped keep my feet on the ground even when my head was elsewhere. I found the need to figure out how to collaborate with people and manage circumstances while staying within service limits. This turned out to be the most valuable lesson the Air Force taught me. In the beginning, it was a baptism of fire, but in the end, I'd learned enough to be able to live the courage of my convictions. I often thought to myself, just keep living the attitudes and values of your life in Rockhampton and the Air Force instilled and you will get there. He went on to say, I found flying in Papua New Guinea really challenging. Being a co-pilot to pilots with wartime service put me on a steep learning curve. Good for flying experience. I was also posted to Air Movement Training Development Unit where I experienced the bigger picture of flying transport aircraft. Now, Ian left the full-time Air Force in 1977 to join Trans-Australian Airlines, yes, TAA, in Melbourne as a Fokker co-pilot. Ian explored continuing to fly caribous as a reserve pilot. Not easy to do. It was a new concept for that era. Meanwhile, Ian left TAA to join Qantas in Sydney. Quite unexpectedly, Qantas arranged secondments to Singapore Airlines and the opportunity to relocate to Singapore for three years and was accepted. Ian then blinkered and all of a sudden it was his 65th birthday. He got an email from the Civil Aviation Safety Authority asking if he was interested in joining them. He started working for the CASA two months later. These days... Ian is helping develop policy and rules for operating large aeroplanes, and I quote, something I would not have qualified to do if I had not been a project officer at Air Movement Training Development Unit and a caribou examiner. Funny how things turn out per adua, ad astra, that indeed. Well, let's listen to Ian, and he can really go into the details of his life. Squadron leader Ian Woods. G'day, Ian. G'day, Gareth. Nice to have your company. Good to be here. I can't understand why a man goes to university, 
learning to become a dentist and then gives it up and becomes in the Air Force. How come? Well, look, the truth of the matter is I didn't really want to be a dentist. <laughs> I always wanted to be a pilot. But uh, you had to be 18 to join the Air Force, and I was only 17 because in Queensland we were fast learners, so you didn't have to go to school for the extra year they had in New South Wales and Victoria. <laughs> yeah. But nonetheless, my father wanted to know what to do with me. He had a brother who'd been to medicine. He said he's not bright enough to do medicine, but he can be a dentist. So off I went. So how many years did you do dentistry? Well, I was only there long enough to turn 18, so that was six months. Well, that would have pleased your father. <laughs> He's uh, not doing dentistry. Well, he didn't have to. He was footing the fees, so I think he was, you know, it was right. okay when I left. Right. So uh, it was 78, number 78 pilots course? Number 78 pilots yeah. course. So how did you actually, what were the steps joining? Uh, what did you have to go through? Um, look, in, 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 when you compare it to what the young people today need to do to get any kind of job, you know, which is run through HR and every other department, it seems very simple. I, I, I seem to remember I filled in a form, uh, they said come down, they gave me some psychometric testing, um, then an interview with one person and he said, yeah, that's okay, you can come down and sit around and talk to three or four, which turned out to be the interview board and I guess I didn't say the wrong thing, so I got a job. Did you get a choice? Which area do you want to go to? Pilot, uh, navigator or whatever? I wouldn't have called it a choice. What they did say when I was about to leave the room, they said, look, uh, the best part of your application is your academics. You know, you've done okay, you've been to university. Our brightest kind of uh, people are navigators. How would you feel about uh, doing that? And I thought for a second and I think I said something like, no, no, if I've got to keep on studying, I'd rather be a dentist. I think if I'm going to join the Air Force, I need to be a pilot. Good answer. So uh, you end up end up in Point Cook? So I ended up in Point Cook. Yeah, at a, at a time, uh, it had changed a little bit, I found out, more or less for pilot assessment and officer training, not really for flying training, just enough flying to uh, for people to kind of form a view that you might be able to be worth spending the money on. Yeah. Uh, maybe when you were, had joined at Point Cook, uh, it was Mackies you were training on, not Windjills? No, no. It the, was Windjills. The 15-hour flying assessment was on Windjills. Windjills. Okay. So how long before you actually got into a Mackie and what was the change like? Um, it was three months at Point Cook and then I recall it was another three months of, of ground school on the technical side of the, of the Mackie. So uh, it was six months after I joined that I, that I got to get in the jet. And uh, look, um, sure, it had a lot more gadgets and, uh, you know, it looked pretty complex when I first looked at it. But i got to say, I don't think it was as hard to fly as the Windjill. Really? Well, you know, Windjill, they were always on. You had to put the rudder in. You had to move so many levers to get the propellers to go at the right speed for the, for the amount of fuel it was getting. So there was just more to do for an ab initio pilot than there was in a jet, which had one go lever, and you didn't need to put the rudder in when you wanted to take off. Go and stop. Yeah. <laughs> you go and stop. So was there formation flying involved while you were in the Mackie? Is that... There was. It was part of the course, and i got to say, it was uh, you know something that I was never very comfortable flying so close to another aeroplane, and, and even less comfortable in those days after you finished the, the flying training and you got your set of wings, you could go and do some more pairs formation just in case you were lucky enough to get posted to fighter sometime. Well, that scared me witless. <laughs> <laughs> you speak or have spoken very highly of the caribou. 
Well, that's where I wound up for my six years full flying with the Air Force. So tell us, give us a, a, a lesson on the caribou and why it was so good. Well, look, it, it was a great aeroplane to come off pilot's course to consolidate everything. It was quite basic, um, you know, but none, and its role was very varied. It used to do low-level flying. It used to do. It even used to do formation flying, but but very little of it, and, yeah. and only in pairs. Um, and it went to out-of-the-way places, whether that was New Guinea, whether that was out in the centre of Australia. Um, so, and of course, it was in the Vietnam era. So, mm. um, the aim was to get you qualified to be able to be posted there. So, you did as much flying as you wanted to do. I mean, basically, any time you wanted to fly, you could. How many people did the Caribou accommodate? I'd had two pilots and a flight engineer, and I think it would take uh, 28 people as passengers, though I can't recall ever carrying 28, because most of the time they came from the Army and they're much heavier sure. with all the kit they carried. Sure. So to what extent would collaboration be an important ingredient in being a pilot on the Caribou? Well, um, certainly teamwork was important. I mean, the Caribou as a squadron was one of those squadrons that was integrated with its own engineering. It, of course, like all squadrons, it had its own administration, but it went away for long periods. Like, for, there was a time there we went to uh, uh, to Indonesia for a few months. Um, we went up to Cooktown for a few months. So the, the routine maintenance that was required to be done was basically done by two pilots and the flight engineer. So you got cross-trained and, and you had to um, yes, I get to understand the basics of engineering. So it, it, it made for a much broader role in aviation than it would typically be uh, for a pilot who was who was on a fast jet or even on an aeroplane like a Hercules that had a separate maintenance, maintenance so, squadron. So would you say that the training within the Air Force itself in terms of teamwork and collaboration with each other was part of making being collaborative on a on a caribou was that a good basis upon which to jump into the caribou look um teamwork was i think something that uh, started with the caribou but but really if i think back on early flying days to be a pilot you needed self-confidence your opposition if i can put use that word yep. was the weather it was the navigation. It was the environment around you. But normally the people were there to help you get the job done, which is different when you get to work with larger teams of people that you need to generally, genuinely see things from their perspective. So being a pilot, I think, didn't initially help with that, but certainly the Air Force did in a later time. In yeah, a later time. I understand. Um, you've flown with Qantas, so you've flown domestic airlines, etc., etc. Uh, is the collaboration, the teamwork with a caribou, A, good training for that, but B, more important on that kind of aircraft, a caribou, than it is on a Boeing 747? I'd say they're much of a muchness. Much, yeah, right. You, know, um, you, you rely on others. In, in any crewed aeroplane, you rely on the people you're with um, to get the job done effectively and safely. As someone said to me, it, uh, you get to be part of a starry team rather than a team of stars. But when you take off in a 747, the pilot takes off and the pilot lands, but the autopilot gets them between point A and point B. That's it. That's not the case with the caribou, was it? No. 
No, no autopilot, no weather radar, no coffee or uh, or air conditioning either. So really your role as a pilot then becomes vital in the success of that particular aircraft. Well, look, in a caribou, um, the, the way the aeroplane was operated, it, it you became a bit of a navigator as well. Uh, to get that aeroplane to somewhere like Indonesia was a six or a seven day trip. Um, you learned elements of navigation, like how to use a, a drift site, how to plot on a plotting chart, which I think it's correct to say that would probably have been, maybe the DC-3 did it too, but generally speaking, that was not a skill that, that most Air Force pilots picked up unless they flew caribous. Okay. Someone listening to you right now may be, who is not in the Air Force may thinking, well, look, I've heard of sabres and I've heard of vampires and I've heard of meteors and blah, blah, blah. But I, caribou, what, is, what does a caribou do? What was its function? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that's, that's okay. You got me laughing about the name. I've often wondered how the hell did they get a name like a caribou. I, I, I don't know why they got that name. But um, I guess maybe because it lives out in the wilderness, because that's where it always seemed to be. You know, I think was, you may have just given the reason why it's called a caribou, <laughs> Ryan. I could guess anyway. Yeah. So tell me, what does it do? Well, look, it was a, it was a tactical transport aeroplane. I, I, I believe it's correct to say that the first ones that were acquired by Australia didn't even make it to Australia. They came from Canada direct to Vietnam. So, you know, I assume that the pilots there went somewhere in Canada, got trained on them and then flew them there. So, you know, it was a, a tactical transport aeroplane and looked very good at it. It's, there's not many aeroplanes around. In fact, I'd go as far as saying there's probably not an aeroplane of that size that can get in and out of the rough strips that a caribou could. And, and the Australian Air Force didn't push it as hard as some of the caribou pilots that I'd flown with who later went on to uh, fight the war, I think it was in Yemen, as basically with the British uh, yes. military. So those guys pushed it even harder and, um, you know, it, it had more to give, but we didn't take it quite that far. Yeah, it's an article, it's an, uh, it's an item that perhaps we should be writing more about in terms of what it did and what it can do and how important a role it had within various conflicts where it has been Australians. Why was flying in New Guinea challenging? Well, it was it was challenging because it was the weather was lousy, and I mean really lousy. I mean, by and large, um, you know, it was good to fly before lunchtime and be landed by early afternoon because it was inevitably thunderstorms in the, in the afternoon. And when you combine that with the fact that the navigation aids were scant, the maps were pretty rudimentary. There wasn't many big towns or many features to navigate from, so. Figuring out where you always where you were was always a bit uncertain. Uh, so the combination of the weather, you know, less than accurate navigation, uh, and the terrain made for some uh, hair-raising moments. And and what was the role of flying in New Guinea? Why New Guinea? It was basically civil aid to to at that point in time. New Guinea was an Australian protectorate, so mm -hmm. I remember that. Even then, much of the education system, the banking system, the nursing system, the civil administration was um, was undertaken by Australians. So, and I, the caribou seemed, from what I can remember, used to take uh, various pieces of equipment, food. But there was also a Navy base out there at Manus Island and Army detachments in, in Ley, Port Moresby and Weewak. So we used to pick up the fresh fruit and food in the highlands of New Guinea, um, fly it 
to the Navy base or the Army bases and, and bring people back, general communications, sure. generally for government entities. And the, the airfields in all of those places, tell us about those. Uh, they're even more interesting than the ones in Australia. <laughs> not, not only were they short, but they were high. Uh, they were, had, you know, they undulated a lot in the middle. Uh, there was one I seem to remember, we used to call it the Tarpini ILS. Now, an ILS is one of those systems that an airline pilot follow, follows down to touchdown at Sydney or Brisbane, and it, it works very well in bad weather. Well, the Tarpini ILS was a goat track, and you followed the, this goat track, went around the hill and down the hill at the same time. So if you followed it down and around correctly, and when you popped around it, there was the aerodrome and you could land. Well, if you didn't, uh, you'd better make a break turn because you had to get out of there quick smart. Okay. It sounds like a fascinating place to fly in. <laughs> Very in. Um, where, where, what were the steps leading to you being aide-de-camp to the Governor-General? No, you've got me confused. No? There was, I, I, uh, um, one thing, uh, flying with many of those ex-Vietnam pilots, that there was certainly... Uh, a steep learning curve when it came to being a confident pilot and a competent pilot, but I would say I would say the Australian term that they were roustabouts or larrikins. So you know I was an 18 year old or a 19 year old. So a few years in their company, I was never going to be aide to the Governor General. Oh well, I, I'm sorry I, I demoted you from that <laughs> That's role. That's okay. That's okay. I did work with Peter Cosgrove at, at a later time, not when he was Governor General, but when he had retired from uh, CDF, Chief of Defence Force, so that, that's as close as I ever got. Yeah, well, here, now there's another fascinating member of the Australian Defence Force. Well, you left in what, in 1997, left the, the Royal Australian Air Force? Um, I left the full-time Air Force in 1977, but um, that's a bit of a story. Uh, when I left, um, I went to join TAA on the F-27. I mean, I'd, you know, it had pressurisation, air conditioning. Was that the Fokker? The Fokker, yeah. Yeah. And um, but the, the people I used to socialise with, um, you know, let it be known that there were part-time jobs in the Air Force if you were still wanted to be involved. And and I always liked the Air Force. I mean, I, you know, it was not a, um, a fun decision to leave. I'll put it that way. It was. So uh, what, did did you leave because your time had was up, or you, why why did you leave? Well, yeah, my time, my time, my return of service was up. Um, and look, after the Vietnam War, the, 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 initially the, the Australian Air Force was in surplus. There were pilots to burn, so to speak. You know, many of the people I w were f had been flying mm. with were posted to pretty nondescript jobs, assistant mess manager, assistant education officer. And I think it was Gough Whitlam, he did away with the return of service for a period of time and basically said, look, the Air Force is flush. If you want to go and do some flying or do something else, feel free. So many people did. Uh, ultimately, that reduced the return of service and, and basically set the scene to encourage people to look further afield. So um, I did. I, I you know, I figured that if you wanted to stay flying as a career rather than a, an Air Force officer, which it was a job in itself, but it wasn't necessarily flying. So you joined the domestic airlines? So I joined the domestic airlines. So TAA. how easy was it to get into TAA, Trans-Australian Airlines? Well, um, it, it, the military was considered to be um, very good training. Um, and flying the Caribou was a very good training platform or learning platform. So 
um, you know, it was pretty straightforward. Um, that didn't mean that everyone always got in because all interviews are personality based sure, and sure. sometimes you say the wrong thing instead of the right thing. But anyway, it went okay for me on that occasion and and I, I went there after seven years. And How did the Fokker compare to the Caribou? Uh, well, it was uh, it was similar in many ways. In fact, surprisingly, its its instrumentation was a lot more basic than the Caribou. I mean, the Caribou had two of two or everything, two of the necessary radio navigation aids and much better communication radio equipment. Um, whereas the Fokker Friendship had only one of this, and you know, and I was a bit surprised. I would have thought that. You know, for fair-paying, fair-paying passengers, they would have got the best, but they didn't. The, 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 I guess the accountants had already found out that we only need an, only need the minimum. But Ian, you're landing on maybe better airfields, and you're only flying between capital cities in Australia, not to New Guinea. No, not to New Guinea. Um, but look, the, the 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 Fokker Friendship did go to out of the way places. In fact, it used to go up to Timor. I didn't go there. Uh, but it went in. It was it was flying subsidised routes, a bit like New Guinea in a way for for places um, you uh, Aramac and Mataburra, and kind of sometimes we'd go there, and the only thing that'd get off would be the letter, you know. <laughs> anyway, there, there's something I would like you to explore a little bit, just in terms of a commanding officer making comments. You, you did join the reserves, and the commanding officer. A commanding officer made some comments when you wanted to get instrument rating. Tell us about that, if you can recall that, and you can say things without being unkind. I, well, no, no, no. Look, it was. It's all. It, it's. Um, it's funny how life works out. But the the way that uh, after I'd been on the uh, Air Force Reserve for a little bit, uh, it came. We, we looked at the paperwork you know, quite closely, and a couple of us had been gazetted, as they used to say, as general duties. Now, that was unusual for an ex-pilot who was basically being uh, employed in a facet of what was the air traffic control world as an operations officer to be uh, gazetted as general duties, which was the same as the um, same category as a full-time pilot. Well, the gentleman you were talking to just prior to me sitting in the chair here, Ray Sebo, I mean, in his time, reservists used to fly Meteors. They used to fly Mustangs. Mm. So the follow-on from if you are general duties, um, it, it looked as if you might have been able to be eligible to fly. And I don't think the the, the governance documentation that governed the management of the Air Force had changed that much since uh, the Korean War and the Air Board orders actually said that if you were a CAF pilot part-time or PAF full-time you could fly an aeroplane on which you were qualified to fly. So I had a commanding officer in in the reserve squadron, City of Brisbane squadron and in the aeroplane I'd been flying full-time for six years to Caribou, Peter Smith who was a fighter pilot, they knew all about these things and they thought it was a good idea. So did I. So we went and did it, um, and it all went um, well enough. I can't say it was particularly well received by everybody in the Air Force, but ultimately the documentation found its way up to operational command, as it was known, and the uh, Air Vice Marshal there, the uh, Air Commander Australia, um, I think he kind of got a hell of a shock because uh, he soon let it be known, no, no, there's simply been an administrative error 
you guys should have should never have been gazetted as general duties. You're hereby re-gazetted as special duties and grounded. So for a while there, it was on, but it was soon off. But it, the cat was out of the bag. It was already running. And, and of course, times had changed. The, the Air Force had let all those pilots go in the in the late in the 70s and by the early 80s the, the world was the america and the rest of it had deregulated the yep. aviation yep. industry and they were short so is that what led to or what were the steps that led to night aerial delivery operations ah well that, that was a speciality that they used to do up at 35 squadron which was the in Carib- singapore no, in, in Townsville. In Townsville, but right. The 35 Squadron was an interesting squadron. One, it was, a, it was the Caribou Squadron that was in Vietnam, so it had an operational tinge, and it was an amalgam of Iroquois helicopters um, and Caribous, and it worked very closely with the Army Brigade or Battalion that was in Townsville. So mm. it uh, undertook nighttime aerial delivery which was not something that we used to do down in 38 Squadron at Richmond. It, it, it's, uh, you know, some of those aerial delivery uh, sorties were down at a few hundred feet at night time, and this is before they had night vision goggles. So you needed to have a reasonably clear night, you know, not too much cloud, good moonlight, and they did it. But um, I think I went along with someone on on one trip for kind of, how to say, to be trained up, but I was... Um, Again, it was another one of those things like formation flying I didn't particularly want to do anymore (laughs) in the airline too long, perhaps. So you spent three years in Singapore. Was that with the reserves or...? No, no. I um, That came about when the Caribou had actually uh, was transferred from RAF Base Richmond to RAF Base Amberley and um, I was wondering how am I going to make this work and it, at the same time, in the civilian aviation arena, the world had had a, I forget what financial crisis it was back then, but there was one. And Qantas had a few hundred pilot surplus, and they created a few jobs or found an airline, Singapore Airlines, that wanted to uh, hire well-trained Australians. So along with several uh, others, um, I took a three-year stint with Singapore Airlines in Singapore. Okay. So... All your steps have led to the Civil Aviation Safety Authority. Uh, are you, is that your current role, or yes, I'm. You know, I failed retirement. Kind of, I'd, I'd retired. You failed retirement. <laughs> I was. I uh, finished international flying with Qantas in uh, 2014, and you know, I guess 62 these days is quite young, though not too long back. People would say it's quite old, especially for a pilot. And, um, of course, if, you, if you've been married, and I had been for, th- you know, 30-something years, when people have got used to living their life without you. So when you come home and you're there every day, you're under their feet. So um, Go and find a job. Go, go and, and find a job. Yeah. Well, that same guy that kind of helped uh, get flying for reservists into place in uh, the early 80s, uh, Stu McAllister, he'd, he'd left the Air Force after a you know, full career, and uh, had a job as a regional manager, and he said to my wife, he said, look, you know, um, Cash will find him something to do. So I, I put in an expression of interest, and again, and I, that's you, where I wound up. Here you are, got the job. If you had to look back at your, all of your caribou flying, let's stay with the Royal Australian Air Force and not TAA and Qantas, <laughs> what stands out for you as, that's a great memory and 
by goodness gracious, I'm glad I did that. Well, look, the, the thing that stands out is the lifelong camaraderie. Okay, I, I mean, I, I, you know, and the older I get, the more uh, appreciative of that I am. Um, the, you know, the, and also the responsibility that the Air Force um, required of young pilots, you know, was it wasn't easy to to live up to uh, as a 21 year old or a 22 year old. But the later in life, you you realise that all those hard yards um, are character building, and they certainly helped me later in life to make the most of the life that I chose to live. Mm. If I hadn't had, um, if I hadn't done the hard yards the Air Force had asked for, I don't think I would have been up for the, some of the later tasks that mm. I undertook. Mm. Being involved with CASA, how would you rate the training of pilots in Australia? Generally, Air Force and non-Air Force. Look, that's that's a really interesting question because often, you know, these days I come in contact with a, a lot of pilots who haven't been trained by the Air Force, and and they they make two they make two kind of common comments. The first one is, you Air Force pilots are always a bit different, um, and that what I take from those comments is. Uh, these pilots that made these comments are also very high achieving and very capable. So when I, upon reflection I see that the Air Force provided the very best of training where money was no object mm. and gave you great opportunity to put it to good use. So that in itself um, is what you take away from a, a career of Air Force flying. It doesn't mean that you're any more gifted. It doesn't mean that you're any more capable. It just means that you had all the opportunity to get there sooner. Last question. Are you glad you left industry? I never look back. <laughs> I'll let you in on a secret, Gareth. They had this subject called physical chemistry. There was no way no one I was ever going to pass it, I can tell you. <laughs> I think they call it quantum mechanics these days, but it was beyond me. Yeah. Well, the Air Force thanks you, and I certainly thank you for your time, Ian, because, uh, again, like all of the other people I've had the privilege of talking to, you really are an important ingredient in the history of one of the greatest flying groups, the second oldest flying service in the world, the Royal Australian Air Force. So, Ian, thank you very much, sir. Thank you, Gareth. I certainly feel very privileged to have had the journey. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua and Astra. Que 
This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.